how great is our God. Amen? Man, that was a sweet spirit. And uh, this was one of those mornings that I think we could have just stayed there in that moment for, uh, I think we could have done it the rest of the morning. And maybe we're robbing that moment uh, by even moving on. But we're opening the word of God. And that is a moment that we should take joy in. And uh, so I just feel like for my own heart, I would like to just pray and invite the Lord into this part of our service as well. We've been offering praise, giving to the Lord. Now we are going to be in a posture of receiving. And so let's just prepare ourselves there. So God, how great are you? How great are you, God? How great thou art. Uh, Songs that are newer to songs of old. You never change. Our songs may change, but the lyrics and what they speak to will not. And so I just ask that as you have blessed us with the privilege of being in the presence of you, that we do not have to trust in a priest to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on our behalf and then tell us what the presence of God is like. We can know what the presence of God is like because Jesus became the curtain for us. So we are going to do as the writer of Hebrews says, we're gonna enter with confidence behind that curtain, be in the presence of you, God, and let what your Holy Spirit authored through James speak to our hearts that we might receive from you, that we then can apply and live out these things in the days and weeks to come. So bless this time, I pray, and all of us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you are new here, my name is Tony, and I'm pastor here at LEFC, and and perhaps you were new last week and you came a second week. Last week you heard from Jeff uh, Travis, who is our connections pastor here, and he spoke from a part of the text in, in the book of James that's about the mouth, that out of the overflow of the heart does the mouth speak. So the mouth is often an evidence of what's going on inside of us. You know, you can't really always tell just by watching and observing somebody's behaviors per se and get the full picture. But the mouth starts really cluing us in as to what a person is made of. And what we're dealing with in the book of James, and James, again, if you haven't been around uh, where we've been talking about this, James was the brother of Jesus. He was the first leader of the church in the sense of in the formational season of the church, Even Peter, who was the voice of the church, would look to James for authority. So James was the one that would often preside over gatherings when they were working through some of the kinks of the early church. And James became concerned about the foundation of this church is that, yes, we've been set free in Jesus, but some people were using that as a license to then just use their freedom to be indulging in sinful behaviors that actually don't reflect God at all. And he's saying that, listen, if we've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he gives us the Holy Spirit who indwells in us and then transforms us and our behaviors are gonna start looking very different. 
And so as we've been going through the book of James, we went through what trials can produce in us. And then over the last uh, few Sundays, it's been about the evidences. And the evidences give us opportunity then to address things in our lives. It's not just a, a matter of uh, taking self-assessment and saying, does my faith show evidence to others it's so that we can create some kind of action boxes? No, it's, it's an, about an assessment. Like, as we assess, are there evidence of God's work in my life? And is it transforming me? And then I can use those questions to then begin to do some good heart work with God. And when the hard work is done between you and God, the evidences flow out. The evidences themselves are not the action item. They're not like a, a, a to-do list. They are simply reflecting that which is really going on inside of you. So it's doing the heart work so that the evidences actually begin to show up. And so last week, as we went from favoritism, where again, the flesh, it values all the external things, how you look, how, how you are perceived, what jobs you do. Uh, it's all your social standings that, that the world puts as values. But with God, he's like, I could care less about all that stuff. What I look upon is your heart. What's the condition of your heart? And then we went into, and a reflection of your heart, again, is the mouth that was last week. Today, it's how you lead. It's how you create a culture around you. It's the wisdom that you apply that affects other people that we're gonna speak to today. So we're gonna be in James chapter three. So if you could open your Bibles there. We'll be in chapter three. And uh, where we were talking about the tongue was verses 1 to 12. Today, we're going to be in verses 13 to 18. So if you do not have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one right now. Just put your hand up. Or you can use the Bible app that we use, which is uh, the U version, Y-O-U uh, version Bible app uh, that you can get in your app store. And if you go to events tab, you'll find LEFC there. Just tap on that and you'll get all the scriptures we're using today. So having said that, the tongue speaks to what's going on inside of us. But today, we're actually gonna compare what the world calls as wise and ambitious that's good, something to pursue, and compare that to a totally different paradigm of heavenly wisdom or godly wisdom that actually sets a different set of ambition, ambitious rules. And we're gonna compare the two and do a little self-reflection at the end of the sermon. So we're gonna begin in verse 13, and, we're, and, there's, and what James does is he begins with a question about wisdom and understanding. So let's start there. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So back to 13. The question is, who is wise and understanding among you? 
Let them show it by their good life, deeds done in humility, that comes from wisdom. So I have a question for you. Who in your life, family, work, or just people that you grew up knowing, that you would say, they are a person that I consider wise, and that if I was lacking wisdom in anything, that's the person that I would go to for advice. Because their life is worth emulating, it communicates that they have good wisdom. Get that person in mind right now if you can. Who in your life is somebody that you would say, if I'm lacking wisdom, I need some kind of direction that I would love to sit down with and get the wisdom discernment that they can offer. Now with that person in mind, why? Why that person? Why would you seek the advice from that individual? For me, I would say that I would look at their life as saying, they are successful in what they do. Now, not success necessarily in all the, the standards of the world, but it, but it appears that by their life, they rarely make mistakes. They are always making the good decision. And as a result, their life has gone very well. And I can respect the way they go about things. If somebody's life is done in such a way, they might be successful, but if I can't respect by the way they became successful... I'm not likely to seek advice from them. Relationally, the kind of person I would want to seek advice from, they are people I would want to follow. Like, I would be okay being under their leadership. They're trustworthy, they're sincere, and they value people. That's the kind of person that I would seek advice from. But let's talk about a different type of person. The person that we would say, yeah, they're successful, They've done everything pretty well. They've accomplished a lot, but they're not likely somebody I would seek advice from. And then I would have to ask you the question, why? Here's why I might not seek advice from somebody that has been successful, maybe under the worldly context. They tend to be people that are ambitious at all costs. You understand what I mean by that? Like the, the ambition, they're so driven that yeah, they're gonna accomplish a lot, but along the way, there's a lot of pain in the wake of them because often they were ambitious at the cost of others or ambitious in a way that left others behind. And then you're like, you know, I really don't care for how they rarely advocate for others. And if they do, when they advocate for others, they're always saying, yeah, I really think highly of this person. I think they'll do well because let me tell you, I've poured a lot of time into them. And then they kind of have this way that by advocating for others, they're actually promoting themselves. You know what kind of person I'm talking about? It's also true that the very ambitious person can often, for the sake of whatever end goal they have, they're willing to cut corners. In other words, mm, I know what the rules are, I know what the law says, but this is a really small issue, and, it's, and, and if I abide by the law or the rules or the ethics in this situation, it's gonna actually slow me down. And I don't wanna be slowed down. 
So they cut corners. And then when they offer advice, you're often thinking, again, this is the person that you, you would not likely want to emulate. It's a person that's successful. They're ambitious. But you're like, I don't know that I ever seek advice from them. Why would that be the case? Another thing that I would say is, when they offer advice, I often wonder, what is their motive when they offer that advice? You feeling the kind of tension that's there? It's like, we're talking about two different types of people that are successful. But one is ambitious to a place where it's all about their own achievement. And the other, their ambition might be there and evident, but it seems like it's much greater than themselves. The one you might take advice from if you're wanting to emulate them and saying, I want to accomplish everything you have. You have a big house. You have a great car. You have everything going well. You're at top of a big company or your family is very successful. I want that because I want it for me. And so you seek the advice for you. But if you're feeling like, man, I have people that work under me. You own a small business, or you lead a team within a business, or you are a patriarch or matriarch where you're leading a family, and you're feeling like, you know, I feel like there's some things that could be better in the way this family is going or this business could be going. Are you willing to humble yourself and seek wisdom that would benefit not only you, but would benefit the whole? See, that's the contrast we're going to talk about here. And in, and in verse 13, it says, Who is the wise and understanding one among you? Let them show it by their good life and the way they go about it humbly as they pull, uh, perform wisdom right before our eyes. There is a humility to it. So in verse 13, when it talks about who is that wise person or that understanding person among you, He's using two different terms. I think it's really important to kind of extrapolate a little bit more. What is the difference between being somebody who understands versus somebody who is wise? The understanding one is somebody that can look at a situation and make sense of it. They can understand why it's happening and, and, and all the things that went into it to make it what it is. Wisdom then can take that understanding and know how to operate within it and to bring it about to something better and greater. Now, I have ran into a lot of sharp young people where they have incredible insight and discernment and understanding, but they haven't lived a lot of life yet to gain some of the wisdom on knowing how to then interact in that moment and be able to manage what the things that they've seen and understood. That comes with time. We often will say, when we run into that young person that is able to understand much of what they're seeing around them, able to discern a lot, and able to operate pretty well, we will say, what? They are wise beyond their, they're wise beyond their years. When we see such a thing, because it's abnormal. The rest of us, the normal folk, if you will, we have to get our wisdom through our bumps and bruises, learning through mistakes, and yes, some successes. That's why Solomon says, the wise person is the one that has gray head. 
because they've lived long enough to have learned how to understand and how to apply effort within that understanding. So wisdom and understanding that comes from God, though, this is the application. So if we understand wisdom and understanding, so wisdom and understanding that comes from God it benefits not only the person that's gaining that wisdom, but the, the, those who gain from the wisdom of that individual. So there is a mutual benefit for those who are becoming wise and those who they lead and those who they interact with. Everybody gains when it's a wisdom from God because it's humbly expressed. Humility is not about self. Prideful wisdom would be about that. Humble wisdom is always in consideration of how it benefits not only me, but for other people. Let's continue on. Verse 14, what does it say there? It says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So there's this contrast that's now going on. So who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show up by good, good life. And living out that wisdom with humility. But there are those who operate with a bitter envy. Or another way to say that, having a harsh edge to them. You know the kind of person that just like feel like every time they open their mouth, it's like it feels like that kind of stung a little bit. You always kind of have to feel a little bit guarded when they speak. Because there's a harsh edge to them. And usually that harsh edge is a pretty arrogant, prideful type of individual. That they're confident in everything they say. And so they are completely unaware of how some of the things they say rub people the wrong way. Just part of it. Again, if you're all about your own ambition, the things that that you're about are about yourself, so you're not always gonna be self-aware as to its effect. And so it's saying, but the person who does not humbly apply wisdom is doing so out of a bitter envy or a harsh edge and a selfish ambition from their hearts. Their end game is their game. Their end game is their game. It's, It's about what I'm gonna accomplish in life. Not about who gets to accomplish these things with me and how we got to do it together. It's exposed over time. Initially, some of these selfish, ambitious people come off as being very winsome and you want to follow them. But as, as, as things get difficult over time and as, as things operate or the next hill that they want to charge, you start seeing more and more that they consider less and less those that are with them. So the selfish ambition doesn't have the same spirit as the godly wisdom that we're being called to. See, godly wisdom, as one commentarian puts it, is is gentle and gracious in the way it comes out. But again, the one whose ambition and, and is using more of an earthly wisdom is going to be harsh. And you're gonna tend to feel like I don't know that they really care about me or anybody else. So the wisdom promoted by the world benefits only the ambitious achievers. And it's all about them climbing their own societal ladder. This person, again, the evidence of them 
is they, when they talk about the things they've accomplished in life, they tend to boast pretty big. And it's even skewed. It, it, the facts aren't always there. It's kind of blowing up the facts a little bigger than they actually are. And when they do speak of somebody else, again, they kind of speak of how their role in, has helped that other person be where they're at. They can't just let somebody else have credit for themselves. It's always about the end game. It's always about me getting higher. So if I can speak of somebody else well in a way that gets me higher, then I'll do it. But otherwise, I say nothing. Those kind of people start becoming more and more isolated over time. And let me tell you, there are a couple of things that really disturb me about what James says here that makes me uneasy because I know I can be guilty of selfish ambition at different points. I know that the fruit of selfish ambition can be harmful. I mean, I have had to endure many conversations around me, not necessarily at me, but around me, when out among the public that have been exposed to some of the things that have gone on among pastors of large churches, podcasts that speak of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Some of you have heard it. Speaks of a pastor that ended up, who was leading a large, large church in the Pacific Northwest. And then through his ambitious behavior, harmed a lot of people that worked with him. And by those results, is now out of the saddle of that church, and that church ceases to exist today. And then you have churches that often were singing their songs. Now, their songs were authored by the Spirit, but that we have regularly, every week, every pastor that's ever preached up here is a sinner, just in case you didn't know. And it would be embarrassing if our sins were exposed to you. But the larger your name gets out in society, the more opportunity there is to shoot a gun at the character of their heart. And I will tell you right now, it's not a large church issue that there are sinful pastors. It is a person issue. Pastors have flesh, just like each of us here in this room. And if we do not apply the wisdom of God upon our hearts, and we don't do what James said earlier in James chapter one, hold the mirror in front of your face and don't run away from it. Look hard. Let it reveal the truth of the character of your heart. If we do not do that, any of us could fail miserably. I've seen pastors of small churches, pastors of large churches, not look into the mirror, and as a result, their hearts were led astray. But let me be blunt. This can happen to each of you regardless of what your role is. If you operate with the earthly principles of wisdom that says it's all about you and your achievements, you will harm people 
You're just not writing books and standing in front of large groups of people where it's more evident to the masses. But it's gonna be very evident to those that know you and are affected by your behavior. Where it gets really uncomfortable is verse 15. He describes this particular type of issue where we are using the selfish ambition of the world as the standard for how we live out and call wisdom, he says, not only is that earthly, it's not of heaven, not only is it unspiritual, it's not of the spirit of God, but it is demonic. It is demonic. So when we choose to live our lives out in such a way with our spheres of influence from our homes as patriarch and matriarchs, if we're, if we're younger, where we're team players, we're part of a team, but you have influence and you have leadership of influence. If you are business owners, CEOs, managers, we all have people that we have the opportunity of either applying the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God says it's not about you. It's about you and others accomplishing all that God desires. If it's about the earthly wisdom, then it is about you and it doesn't matter who's hurt in the wake of that. And that is demonic it is right out of Satan's playbook. See, demonic values promote a wisdom. They promote a wisdom that you think exclusively about you. Let me compare this to the first moment where we see the playbook of, uh, of the devil. Adam and Eve. They were told they could enjoy the full fruit of the garden. They have direct relationship with God. There's full freedom there. The only thing they were told that they were not allowed to do was what? Eat of that one tree called the knowledge of good and evil. The devil, Satan himself, comes to Eve and what does he appeal to? He appeals to that which she doesn't know and says, you know, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because then you'll be like him and you'll know what he knows. And so he's withholding from you so that you don't know all that he knows. Seems pretty appealing, right? He appealed to her personal ambition. You can become like God in knowing what he knows. And then Adam joined in the same pursuit. It appealed to his heart. I want to achieve something greater than what I am now. I have everything. He had everything you could ever want. But God said, but don't, don't take of this. One thing. Just one thing. And Satan's playbook is appeal to the one thing you don't have. Because it's all about you. And then they reap the consequences immediately. And we reap the consequences of that decision ever since. Because we tend to have the same thing. The world is constantly tell us, telling us, you have the right to be happy. You have the right to pursue anything that makes you happy. And then if that pursuit of happiness is being thwarted or challenged by somebody else, you eliminate them. 
you shout them down or you call them hateful. And that's what happens. And James says there are two outcomes for such wisdom applied. So if we apply the wisdom of Satan, this demonic wisdom that's all about you, two things will happen. One, it's in verse 16. It will create disorder. It will create disorder. In fact, it's chaos. Such wisdom and ambition that is all about you will create chaos in the, in the community that you're within. Why? Because think about it. If it's all about you and you are in the midst of a community and you don't care about anything going on around you, it's all about you, people are eventually going to get ran over. And people are going to get hurt. And when that happens, they begin to get defensive and want to protect themselves because they don't like being hurt by you or by somebody else. And so they fight back. And now you have disorder. Show me a company, a family, a marriage that is in disorder. And I will tell you, it began with somebody saying, it's all about me. And somebody in response says, okay, it's about me. They entrench and they divide. And it creates chaos within the home. It creates chaos within the workplace. It creates chaos in, in friend groups. It creates chaos among teams that you might be on. If there is a spirit of it's all about me, the community falls apart. The culture degrades. Second thing it says in verse 16 is that it will create a, a culture that promotes all kinds of evil practices. And I would say it creates a culture that lacks a moral compass. Because what happens is, if you are operating where it's all about you, there is no sense of boundary in regards to others or consideration of others in being valued. And so you're looking out for yourself and that creates relational trauma between people which then manifests in mistrust and anger. And when we're angry and not trusting, the gloves come off and all types of sin comes out. So many different things manifest out of this. Retribution of various kinds. Relational harm, verbal abuse, emotional abuse. Approving of behaviors that would be considered disgusting otherwise. And if you're in that culture and you're surrounded by it, you have a choice either to leave it or if you stay, you survive in it by carrying on this whole idea of it's about you as well. So you have to throw out anything ethical or moral and your integrity basically has to go away. When selfish ambition, worldly wisdom gets applied, things do not turn out well. That person might end up being successful, but at a cost where they have very few friends in the end. Now, verse 17, 
This is where we get the contrast, okay? Because it began in verse 13. Who is wise among you? Who is understanding among you? Let them be, live a good life. Let them show humility in their wisdom. So then he talks about what's the outcome of that. If the outcome is disorder and evil practices of all kinds, what does the, the wisdom of heaven produce? It comes from heaven. It is, first of all, it produces purity. So it's of motives that are holy and pure. And then you go on in the list, it says, and peace-loving. So it, it wants an accord between each other that accomplishes things that brings peace to each other because that is something we enjoy. When humanity is at peace with each other, much can be accomplished. It brings much more joy in the journey. And then it says after that in the NIV, the, the term considerate, which again requires thinking of other people, actually considering what my actions, again, if I have understanding and then I want to apply some kind of wisdom to that understanding, I'm going to think about how does this impact those around me? And how does it impact those who are not nearby but can see this from afar? And then you can use that as part of your decision-making process to make the wisest decision. And then the next term you see in the NIV is this term submissive. And I actually believe that's not the best translative term there. I believe it would be better said as reasonable, reasonability. Because it's talking about the ability to kind of work something out with, you know, I get the submissive term can kind of get there. But I think for us, we tend to think of submissive as being authoritative to under authority. And this is actually talking about some two human beings working something out reasonably. So think about this for a moment. Just, just to write here the list, because we haven't finished the list yet. Pure motives, holy motives, peace-loving, wanting peace between each other, consideration of how others are gonna receive our actions so that we can operate most wisely, and submissive or reasonability with each other. Imagine if that was applied in D.C. What would change? Everything, right? And what if that happened in our communities? Right now, there's a lot of disagreement within our communities, we have another election cycle. I feel like they're constant. And it always brings out some poor spirit. But what if we, in the process of going through these things, and it's a necessary thing to elect officials, and, I, and again, I will be at the polls here in a few days when we get the opportunity to vote. But what it says here, our wisdom that we apply when we're engaging society, of which I believe Christians should be involved in society, that when we do so, our motives are pure, and that we choose that we want the path that brings peace, and peacemaking isn't always easy, it's usually a difficult road, and then in that, we consider it, we are considerate of how each other are standing and communicating, and then as a result of that, we are reasonable with one another. Full of mercy, because let me tell you, I love that he puts full of mercy there. Holy Spirit knows what he's doing, right? Because after we apply peace-loving things, we're pure in our motives, we're being considerate, you know what really frustrates me is when you apply those things and the person responds to you with a poor attitude. 
Because it's not fun. Like, it's not easy to be considerate or reasonable. It's not easy to be pure in motives when you know there's somebody on the other side of this that's disagreeing with you. And to be peace-loving and wanting that. And you're doing all those things to the best of your ability. And then they treat you like, yeah, you know what? It's awful. And so can we be like God in that moment? Merciful. Where we do not treat them as they deserve. And then he says, you know, if we're able to apply these things, good fruit's gonna start happening. And part of that good fruit is we're gonna be impartial. We're not gonna show favoritism. And we're gonna be sincere. We're gonna keep our integrity intact because that's the wisdom of God. We're never gonna cut corners. When it's not about our own game, it's going to be about God. See, the wisdom of God, when applied, will benefit both you and others. Bottom line, when you apply the wisdom of God, it will benefit you and others. It's not just about you. So let's compare. We have verses 14 and 15 and 16 talking about earthly wisdom. And verse 17 gives you the heavenly wisdom. So let's look at those, those side by side. Earthly wisdom, harboring bitter envy, that harsh edge, selfish ambition. It's not from heaven. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. And it results in disorder and every evil practice. But then look at godly wisdom, peace-loving, considerate. It's submissive or reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now, which list do you like? But notice the last one. It says, sown in peace. When sown in peace, the wisdom of God, sown in peace, it reaps, it produces a harvest of righteousness. So when we apply the wisdom of God, verse 18 says, peacemakers who sow in peace will produce, reap a harvest of righteousness, good things. Remember verse 13 says, those who are wise and understanding among you, let them show up by their good life, their righteous life. So too it says here, such people make peace and their lives produce a harvest of righteousness. Let's prepare our hearts for self-reflection and prayer. Would you join me? So God, use this moment to reveal the realities of our hearts as we hold the mirror up and we take a hard look at what the mirror reveals. The mirror being the word of God and the Holy Spirit eyes helping us see what we need to see. So in Jesus' name, I ask that. My questions to you are, if somebody was to look at you, would they see your life as somebody they could go to for wisdom that produces the things of God? Or would they see you as somebody that's very ambitious, but not necessarily somebody you'd want to follow. What do you think people would assess about you? Maybe how you could answer that question is by asking this next one. Who benefits by the way you live? 
if you're uncomfortable with the answers that God's giving you about, and maybe you're like sometimes operating by the wisdom of God and sometimes very ambitious, but generally speaking, you're mostly ambitious. And it's usually about you. Who's that wise person you thought of earlier? Maybe you need to go to them and ask for guidance on how to live a life that's by a different strategy. Because the current strategy you're utilizing, if it's all about you, is gonna implode on you. And by the time you realize it, you're gonna have very few friends around you. And then lastly, what is your life producing? Is it producing a, a harvest of righteousness? Or is it really just producing more accomplishments right next to your name? It's all about you. If somebody else benefits, okay, but it wasn't intentional. You see, God blesses a life that is pure in heart, humble in heart, and desires God to be glorified. To be able to move out on such questions and to be able to apply it takes faith. It takes courage. It takes the Lord working in us. We're going to be singing a song, inviting God to give us courage and strength to, to receive what we've seen in the mirror by looking at ourselves and be able to apply, Lord, I need a change. So let's stand and sing. We're gonna sing a song called Give Me Faith as a petition to the Lord to help us. Sing the song of surrender together. And I need you to soften my heart and break me apart. I need you to open my eyes and see that you're shaped.
So I'd like to challenge from two different angles before we go. If you're an empty nester and you're starting to see a little bit of sprinkled gray or maybe you have a lot more than that, my encouragement to you is you've done a lot of life and there is wisdom that comes from that. You have the opportunity to pour that into the next generations. We are always looking for people willing to mentor those who are hungry for the Lord and desiring to grow. And we have many that are just saying, you know, I've done my time. And it's like, no, you haven't done your time yet. You're still living and breathing. And so your time with the Lord is coming, but let's seize the time now to help impart the wisdom you've gained. So I'd encourage you to reach out to one of the pastors and just offer yourself and say, you know what, I'm willing to give of my time if it could help somebody. You might feel insecure about that, great. I feel insecure every week I come up and speak to you all. So we'll meet you in the middle. For those of you who are younger, still have a lot of life to live, be willing to receive wisdom from those who've lived longer. Be humble and you'll gain a harvest of righteousness. Trust me, it's worth it to receive from those who have lived a little longer. Be hungry for learning and quick to apply the wisdom of God. Remember Solomon. When Solomon was given the opportunity to lead a nation, his first act was to realize the weight and gravity of that moment and to say, God, I need wisdom to help these people. That's what he asked for. And God granted it to him and he became the wisest man on the earth other than Jesus. And it's because he wanted to help others. May God give us that kind of wisdom. If you'd like to speak to someone to pray with or to receive some wisdom, we'll have uh, the encounter room will be available and there'll be people in there that'd be glad to talk with you. I will also be up front. And, uh, and whatever we can offer, we will offer. Minimally, we can pray with you. Go in the wisdom of God and the ambition of serving others. Amen. You are dismissed.